Hello, I'm Ian Wielden, a senior lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast. Today's guest is Jason Thompson, filmmaker and co-director of The Bigger Picture, a film and photography agency based in the northeast of England. In our chat, we talk about Jason's approach to creativity and how he's arrived at filmmaking through an early interest in music production, a first career as a music teacher, which was then followed by a period working as a web designer during the tech explosion of the late 90s and early 2000s. We also talk about the importance of looking after your mental health in whatever field of work you choose. As usual, there are links to the various projects and organisations in the podcast notes and on the WordPress site, so you can follow up on anything you want to know more about there. Thanks again to Jason for the chat, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. So thank you very much for joining me today, Jason. If we could just start off by hearing a little bit about what it is that you do. Okay, so for the last 10 years, when anyone's asked me what I do, I've sort of said I'm a filmmaker. And I've grown more at ease with that description in that I now feel that it's an accurate description, whereas originally it was an aspirational description. Um, I kind of wanted to be seen as a filmmaker because previous to that I'd done web design and previous to that I was a teacher. So the idea that I was this creative person who made films seemed like a, you know, a desirable thing to, to, to call myself. But I did feel a little bit of a fraud calling myself a filmmaker because when you hear the word filmmaker, you think of Ridley Scott or Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm not that. Usually what I'm making are short films for clients, commercial clients, who have uh, a story to tell, which might be to do with a project or a product or an event. Uh, it might be to do with training. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I would get involved and, and create a short film, sometimes slightly longer. I've never made a feature-length film, and some people would not call what I create films, they'd call them videos or they'd call them content or they'd you know and that's all fine and it's all true but I, I prefer to try and cling on to the word film because to me it embodies something which I aspire to in terms of quality and narrative which video doesn't video was kind of a, a word which in the 80s became a little bit of a dirty word when it went as far as creativity was concerned yeah. because it was synonymous with either corporate videos which in the 80s were horrendous or you know video rentals or you know it's kind of it didn't have a ring of quality to it yeah. and and I've kind of got an aversion to the word video so and again if I were, if I describe myself as a videographer I would immediately think oh you do weddings then and I don't I don't well I do very very I have done occasionally weddings for friends but wedding videography is certainly not something that I've ever really aspired to or, or done so when people say, what do you do? Um, I, I do say I'm a filmmaker, but I quickly qualify it by saying, and I make usually short films which end up somewhere on the internet, whether it's on a website or social media or, you know, uh, a whole bunch of things. And there's lots and lots of different types of, of film that I make. And there's no, there's no typical job. Um, but yeah, that's at the moment how I describe myself until I can think of something better. So quite a wide range of different types of films. 
Yes. So what, what kinds of clients do you work for? At the one end of the spectrum, we work for quite large uh, multinational clients who uh, may have you know, a, a story to tell which might be related to a new product or service. Um, and they're very corporate often and they've got a very uh, you know, specific thing that we have to, to put across. And it's then looked at by their comms department and their you know their branding people to make sure that it's on message and it looks right so that's at the kind of biggest end of the spectrum and then we work on more regional things and national things um, and they can sometimes be bigger clients so it might be a construction company or it might be a bank or it might be a third uh, sector organization charity or it might be a, um, a museum or it might be a school and then right down at the the smaller end of things we sometimes work for individuals who've got a little thing that they do and they want other people to know about it they might have a shop or a restaurant or a a place or a product they might have written a book for instance and so whatever it is we can usually create something which tells people who need to know about that thing something about that thing in a way which is you know pleasing to the 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 creator uh satisfying hopefully creatively to us and entertaining in some way and memorable to the intended audience. Do you class yourself as a documentary maker? In- yeah, so that's what I'd like to be, I suppose, if I was being really honest. The thing that really excites me is real stories. I've never particularly done anything that has a script. Occasionally there's been a corporate thing or two which has had a little bit of a script, but I've never filmed a short you know, film or a little comedy sketch or anything like that that's actually scripted. And what I really like doing is finding the story in real people in real situations where they haven't been set up and they haven't been told to say a certain thing. I quite like hanging back a little bit and observing and, and finding the story in something. And sometimes you get to do that um, and sometimes you don't. You know, It just depends on the job and what they the turnaround is and the timescale and obviously the budget. Um, but in an ideal world, I'd love somebody to say to me, okay, there's this really interesting thing or person and we'd like you to just do your own thing and, and make a, make something interesting about it and and we don't really have an agenda, but here's a budget and go go and do something. That, that would be a dream job for me. I'd love to do that. It doesn't happen though, unfortunately. But it sounds like you've grown into the aspiration of what you wanted to do you think you said 10 years ago mm-hmm. what, what's an average day like for you is there such a thing as an average day or is it you know is it project by project it is project to project and at any one time there might be anywhere from 5 to 25 open projects so we're somewhere along the road to completion yeah. so obviously a project We'll start with an initial conversation. Somebody will want something and we'll talk to them about whether we can do that for them or not and whether it's within budget and what the timescale is. So, you know, the discussion is always the starting point, often because they've seen something that we've done and they think that we can handle what they want. Yeah. Um, and then the next phase of that process is actually starting to plan the production and think, okay, they've said yes, they've said, yeah, we want you to do that. So we'll then get into, okay, let's put some dates in the diary for either a meeting or a discussion or some shooting or some whatever. So that's the kind of production side is the next phase. The next phase after that is the 
post-production side where we've captured all of the elements that we need, whether it's film or audio or stills or whatever. And so we enter a post-production phase where I'm usually editing. And my job then is to take all of these bits and pieces that I've collected or been given or shot or however I've got these, these assets and to put them together in the way that I think is best to serve the purpose for that project. So that's the post-production. And then after that, there's a little bit more of a discussion with the client about whether that's meeting their needs or not. There might be a little bit of revision, a little bit of tweaking. And then it, it goes out into the world and there's a response to it and an evaluation process. And then we start again on something else. So at any one time, this is purely on the video side of things. We also do stills and we do podcast productions and we do live streaming and other things as well. But mainly my job is the video side of things. Yeah. At any one time, there'll be multiple things at various different stages of that process. Um, and that can be a little bit baffling. And when I was self-employed, which is over, well, it's about 18 months ago now. 18 months ago, I became a co-director of The Bigger Picture with my business partner, Angela Carrington. But previous to that... I was kind of playing it by ear. It was a little bit ad hoc. I was, again, I had a, a notebook in which I tried to keep track of what was happening on multiple different projects. We're working at a level now where that notebook is not sufficient. And so we now use a piece of software called Monday, which is a, a project tracker. Mm -hmm. And there's several of us in the organization that have access to that. And we're able to log all of the documents, sorry, all of the projects and attach documents to it, you know, give updates on where we're at with it, tick boxes as to whether we were in the edit phase or whether the client had seen it, whether there'd been any feedback. So that now is a way that we have to work. So on a day-to-day -day basis, I'll go and look at my, my Monday software and I'll see what all of the open projects are and I'll, I'll consider what the next most urgent thing is to do in terms of deadlines and I will put that to the top of the list and I'll do that. And it could be, for instance, today I've been subtitling a film that's already been produced and has been signed off, but now they need a, a subtitled version of it. Uh, we've also been talking with another client um, at the very early stages of an, of an animation project, getting the script right, getting the storyboard right, talking to our animator and, and getting him to be prepared. I've sent over this, the storyboard to him this afternoon and he'll have a look at that over the weekend and I'll talk with him on Tuesday and we'll get some kind of next steps from, from him. Um, some days I'm out with my camera gear in a, you know, whatever it is. I might be in a school, I might be in an organisation, I might be in a kind of a business event or a networking event or out in the countryside somewhere doing actual filming, which is what people think of as the job of a filmmaker, but it's a small part of, of the whole picture. Um, and I love those days because you're getting out, you're, you're being with people, which I love. Um, you're doing something which is truly creative in that you're capturing, you know, footage, you're deciding on, you know, lighting and lenses and, you know, framing and, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, how many frames per second you're going to shoot at so that you can slow it down later. There's lots of creative decisions that you make when you're actually f doing the, the, the filming in the production side. Um, some days I might be editing. Um, very often that's either here at home or in our studio in the Biscuit Factory in Newcastle. Um, and that day looks like me sat in front of a computer with headphones on, unable to listen to music 
or a podcast or anything because I have to give my full attention to what's in front of me and go through the edit process. And, and even that edit process has got several stages. So for instance, a, a typical job might involve me interviewing one or more people uh, and then shooting what we call B-roll, which is the kind of supporting footage that, that helps tell that story. And the editing process will involve me taking that interview, if it's an interview-based project. Um, and the first thing I'll do is I will make that work as an audio-only narrative. I will do the edit, ignoring the visuals completely, but just making it work as, a, as if it was a podcast, really, or a radio show. Um, and that involves cleaning up audio, which you know all about, taking out ums and ers and awkward pauses and taking this part of the interview which happened at 26 minutes in and putting it early on and taking the thing that happened at four minutes in and putting it later on because that really helps to tell the story better so there's that kind of messy process which is also very creative and I do enjoy before I get into the visual side because people think oh well filmmaking is a very visual medium and and it's obviously it certainly is but in my opinion the the audio side of things is as important, maybe more important than the video side. I remember Werner Herzog saying to somebody, a student who said, you know, I need to make films. What, what would you recommend? What gear what, what should I get? What type of camera? And he, he was like, well, use any camera you want, but make sure that your audio gear is really top notch because if your audio is no good, people will not enjoy or stick with the story that you're telling. Mm. And, and I noticed that, that when I'm watching content online, I'm very forgiving of the visuals, but I'm not very forgiving of the audio. If there's a boomy sound or it's indistinct or it sounds distant or there's lots of background noise, that really puts me off. Maybe yeah. that's just me, but I, I, I like the audio to be as good as possible. There's two or three things going on there, isn't there? There's there's the organisational side of it, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking primarily about the, the technical stuff. So is that self-taught? Yeah, largely. I mean, on the audio side, I've been doing audio editing since I was 15, and I'm 54 now, so a long time. Um, I suppose when I was a teenager, one of the things I really wanted to do, and what I thought I'd be doing when I grew up, so to speak, was to be a um, work in a recording studio, to be an audio engineer. That's the thing that really excited me. Microphones, tape in those days faders you know to actually go into a recording studio which i did very occasionally was a magical experience and it was like being in a hallowed special magical place you know and i felt sick with nervousness when i went into that type of place even more so for a television studio i very occasionally managed to get into a tv studio and it was like oh this is amazing you don't get to see this type of thing anymore um, you don't get to see this type of thing being the sort of person that I am from where I live. You know, I yeah. live in Newbiggin-by-the-Sea in Northumberland and we, you know, in this area, typically we, we do not go into the media. We are not into television or film or anything like that. So it seemed like a pretty special, distant thing, but it really interested me. Um, so that side of things, that kind of the audio skills, I've, I've been practising for many, many years um, recording music demos, recording radio shows, uh, recording you know audio documentaries, whatever. So when I come to my current job, the audio side is very very natural. It, it's like yeah. second nature. 
Can you pinpoint the thing that triggered that interest in recording studios and, and that interest? Is that, is that what you wanted mm. to do when you were at school? That is, that's what I wanted to do. That was the first realistic idea of what I wanted to do. Well, I think earlier than that, when I was maybe 11, 12, I wanted to be on television in whatever capacity. Like a performer. Of Some kind of performer or presenter or anybody who was on television. I suppose it, it, it was a little bit like I wanted to be famous. That might have been the root of right. that. And so and I was interested in, I was very confident as a kid and a little bit on the arty side. So I went, when I was 12 or 13, I went to Backworth Drama Centre in Northumberland and, and was part of that group with a bunch of fam, you know, fantastic other teenagers. And we did amazing, enjoyable things and shows and we took things to the Edinburgh Festival. So that was kind wow. of the first thing that I really thought, oh, wow, I can do this and I really enjoy it. And it was probably being with those people that got me into being a musician and thinking about recording um, because I, I was with a bunch of people who were talented in terms of they could play the guitar and they could sing and they could play drums and all this sort of stuff. And I've always been musical uh, from, a, from being a very small kid. My granddad played guitar and the trumpet in dance bands in the 40s and 50s. So I come from a, a musical sort of heritage uh, but being with these other teenagers who, you know, were doing this music really made me think, oh, yeah, this is a perfectly natural thing to do. This is what I want to do. And I've, you know, I've played the guitar for years. I, I sing and various things like that. Um, and I, I think it was probably that time where I thought, ah, oh, yeah, recording. Because I had a ghetto blaster um, in 1982. I got one for Christmas, might have been 1981. And it had a record function on it so I could record myself doing yeah. silly sketches with my friends or playing the guitar or whatever. And then a few years later, we got a kind of a, a, a hi-fi stack system that had a double cassette deck. Tape to tape. Tape to tape. And the great thing about that cassette was it had a mic input and you could play something on one tape, record it on the other tape, and at the same time bring something in through the microphone input yeah. to add a track so it was like multi-tracking and you could do that as many times as you wanted before the the kind of quality of the audio yeah, yeah. went uh you know too bad and you had to be very careful because you had no uh there's no possibility of remixing you had to get the levels just right as you went and uh, if something was a bit too loud and it was too two generations earlier then it was stuck you can't you couldn't yeah, go back locked in yeah so that was my first foray into actual recording and I think my mum and dad, I was probably about 14 at this time, 14, 15. Uh, my mum and dad have always been really supportive of my forays into creativity. They bought me um, a Fostex 8 track. Oh, wow. Back in like 1986. So that was like, it, it was amazing, really. Yeah. And, you know, I, I credit we... them with being just amazing parents and and. That was it. Didn't deserve it probably, but that was that that launched me into several years of audio creativity, which involved eventually MIDI samplers, acoustic instruments, electronic instruments, percussion, all sorts of things, and I uh, produced an album when I was twenty-one um, that had you know it was like a forty-minute album called Crunchy Maggots. 
when I listened to it now, I was I was trying to be Frank Zappa. Right. Um, around about that time, I was listening to a lot of Frank Zappa. A friend of mine had introduced me to Frank Zappa, and he was the first uh, example of music that, to me at the time, sounded incredibly clever and was also very funny. And I loved that combination yeah. of clever and funny. And and so I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. That if I'm going to be doing music, I want it to be complex and clever, and to be referencing other bits of music and to. Uh, you know, really kind of put eclectic things together and have this humorous edge to it, a bit of a satirical edge, a bit performance kind of um, uh, led. So, yeah, that's what I was doing when I was in my teens and late teens. I was creating multi-track music with my friends and I was lucky in that a lot of my friends were also talented musicians. I was in a, a group of people who could all play things and sing and do all sorts. The obvious question, I guess, there is where were you getting the inspiration for this from? Were you all learning together? Yeah, I mean, we were. And when I think about it now, it was kind of a unique time in history. And I think, I think it would be difficult for, or certainly more rare, for people of that age to do that now because of the internet. And in, and in many ways, the internet is a wonderful thing. But I think it's also meant that people do these things on their own rather than with other people. Yeah. Because you can, you know, you can do it all on your own, on in one room, yeah. and really not kind of involve anyone else. Whereas back in the day, I would, you know, I'd pull in somebody to do a guitar solo, I'd bring somebody else in to do a bass line, somebody else could play the trumpet, somebody else could sing, somebody else was a great keyboard player. So, you know, I brought all these people in and we worked on things. We were rarely all together at the same time. In fact, never all together at the same time. But there would be a process where I'd I'd put a basic track down that might be kind of sampled drums and, you know, some kind of keyboard line or something like that. And I'd think, oh, this really needs a, an organ solo or a trumpet. Though. And I'd just bring people in and we'd build it up. So were you, at this point, doing this stuff completely outside of school and away from school or was there crossover with there was a little bit of crossover at school um certainly at high school my music teacher was a, a guy called paul slaughter and he has stayed with me in my life i still have um a friendship with paul and we do creative things together and he's an amazing pianist and at school he was like one of the first people who really championed um, technology in, in music. I mean, I suppose it's lucky the time that I was at high school, sort of the you know early to mid 80s. Technology was just kind of starting to be a realistic thing. So home computers had, had just become a thing. Mm. Back in those early days, we were using Atari ST computers and Miltator uh, for our MIDI stuff. Paul knew all about that. And he kind of introduced me to that technology and drum machines and sampling and sequencing. So Paul was certainly a, a very influential figure in that he was, you know, a, a great guy to begin with, fun, extremely talented, knew his way around all of this technology and wasn't in the least bit daunted by it and was in a position to pass that on to his pupils. So yeah, um, that was that was very influential and you know, and eventually, of course, along with the, the multi-track tape recorder, the other extremely important aspect of the home studio was the Atari ST computer, yeah. um, which had this notator uh, software on it, which basically recorded note um, values. 
and I had a sampler and I could create my own samples and play sounds in and play them back and edit the samples and you know I really got into all of that and and spent many 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 hours learning how it all worked and putting it all together and creating my own music and I'm not sure that I knew anybody else who was doing that so there was a lot of kind of self-tuition yeah and again pre-youtube so yeah, yeah. if you had a problem where do you turn? You just have to figure it Five out. Five hours of messing yeah. about with it. Well, yeah, messing it. about with it, basically, yeah. just to kind of get it working somehow. Yeah. Um, so lots of experimentation and no real fixed end in sight. It was just free creativity, playing really, yeah. and seeing what happened and thinking, oh, that sounds as though it needs this other sound in it. If I don't have that sound, let's make it or find it. You know, there were magazines at the time that had cover CDs which might have samples on or yeah. drum loops or this sort of thing, again, pre-internet. And so we could use that. Uh, yeah, and I, I absolutely loved that. And and I thought, oh, I want to do this as a job because at the time I was, I was a music teacher. I did a, a degree uh, at Northumbria, four-year Bachelor of Education, honours degree, became a teacher thinking I'm going to be a music teacher because that seems to be the natural progression for what I'm interested in. Paul was an inspirational music teacher. Um, I was in um, in a relationship with um, someone whose dad was a music teacher as right. well and got on really well with him. And so I knew a lot of kind of music teacher influences and I thought, these are great people and I'd like to be like that. Um, little did I know that education was not really my cup of tea and it was it was not something that I took to in terms of doing the actual job of being a teacher. And I realised while I was a music teacher that what I actually wanted to do was be creative with music rather than teach other people how to play yeah. a keyboard or a guitar or whatever. That's something that I can do, but I don't want to do that because I don't really think that's that's me. Did you go down that route as a teacher because it felt like a kind of acceptable career that you could combine this interest with it was being a producer yeah. too far well being yeah so the thing about being a producer at that time I noticed that home computers were starting to become very popular and the bottom was falling out of the recording studio market because increasingly people could make their own demos yeah they could get a computer, they could get um, a com you know samples or whatever. They could create their own stuff and they didn't have to pay a lot of money back in those days to go and spend a day or two or three days paying somebody else to do what they could do themselves at home. They would, they would use that money to buy a computer, yeah. not to buy three days of studio time. Yeah. And so I realised at that point how how are you going to make a living as a as a studio producer what sort of work is going to come in i saw it i saw that role become something that was very difficult it's changed and i think it's kind of come back in different ways but at the time it made me think ah that's not actually a safe career choice teaching probably is a safe career choice i'll still get to do music the hours look good the holidays look good this is how naive, naive i was um, I reckon I could do that teaching job and still have lots of fun in my spare time. Um, and what I didn't bank on was that the teaching job would become so all-consuming and so stressful 
that I didn't want to do anything in my spare time because yeah. I'd been just drained by the job of being a teacher gradually over six years. So, yeah, the, the reality was very different. And I realised at that time, I need to get out of this and do something else. But what, what are my options? What you know, I didn't know what my options were at that time. So how long did you do that for? Uh, I did that for three years full-time and nearly three years part-time. So I worked at Newbigin Middle School as a head of music from qualifying and did that for three years as well as a bit of class teaching of other subjects um, around the music department and then I my, my colleague Paul Slaughter who I mentioned earlier got the opportunity to leave his teaching job which was then at Ashington High School and set up his own business doing kind of multimedia development right back in the very late 80s early 90s and he said to me, ah, oh, uh, you know, I work two and a half days a week at the high school. Um, I'm going to be leaving because I'm going to be doing my multimedia stuff full time. Uh, how how would you like to take over my job and work as a teacher at Ashington High School two and a half days a week? And the other two and a half days of the week work for me in my multimedia business, helping me create, you know, at the time, CD-ROM resources before the Internet. Right. And that appealed to me very much. So I left Newbigin Middle. I took up a job at Ashington High as the head of music there and did two and a half days uh, of music teaching and two and a half days of working uh, with Paul's company, which was called Team at the time. And we were creating uh, CD-ROM educational resources, basically, which is like very early uh, multimedia you know, stuff that had sounds and visuals and animations and, yeah. you know, so we, so we were working for those two or three, two or three years on a project, on a project called First Class Music, which was a, a CD-ROM aimed at helping primary school teachers deliver what was now the national curriculum, which was a big daunting scary thing yeah. because you got a lot of teachers in primary schools particularly who weren't specialist music teachers who were being asked to deliver a specialist music curriculum with attainment targets and evaluation and assessment and all the rest of it and a lot of them didn't know where to start with it so our idea was to create a, a resource a multimedia resource based on cd-rom that they could have in their classroom that taught them the fundamentals of how music works rhythm texture timbre blah 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 pitch whatever so we, we spent a couple of years developing that and created a, a CD-ROM. And during that time, uh, while I, I was originally brought in to, to kind of help with the, the creation of some of the music on that job, um, to write some things and record some things because I had all this recording gear and, the, and it needed lots and lots of music examples. So I was brought in initially to do that. And then eventually I realised that doing two jobs was really difficult because whenever I was at school I was thinking about all the things I wasn't doing with yeah. my other job and whenever I was doing my multimedia job I was thinking about all the things that I was not doing and needed to be done with my teaching job and I found it actually even more stressful than just being a full-time teacher yeah. and I knew that at that time I'd tasted this a creative multimedia world and I couldn't go back to being a full-time teacher that was never going to be an option so I actually, in 1995, made the decision that I would give up my teaching job 
and I would continue to work the two and a half days with Paul on his multimedia business. And in the other two and a half days, I would set up my own business doing uh, whatever I could. And and luckily, in, in you know, at that time, 1995, it was the very, very early days of the internet. And someone I was working with uh, on some of Paul's projects said to me one day, he said, uh, websites do you can you do you know what websites are no i don't know what websites are he said well you better find out and uh more than that you better learn how to create websites so because that's going to be a big thing and it's not that difficult and i think you could do it so i went out and bought literally i bought a book called learn html in 24 hours <laughs> and it, it it's not as simple as it sounds because it was 24 one hour lessons in which you learned how to write HTML, which is like a very simple programming language. Um, and it was all done in Notepad on, on a PC. No visual interface whatsoever. Uh, but I did, I taught myself to do that. And, and literally two weeks after reading, I was working uh, for two weeks down at the Civil Aviation Authority on their intranet, teaching them how to implement their intranet and, and designing bits of it, which is a bit scary because I I was like two weeks ahead of them. Um, but that was, I, had, I kind of enjoyed that and I liked the challenge. And to be at the very uh, start of something completely new was really interesting, you yeah. know. And, and I could also see a little bit of where it was going to go. It was obviously very slow in well, those days. It does sound like there's a pattern though there, which is always being interested in, new things and seeing potentially what's coming and maybe what's falling away or what's becoming mainstream mm -hmm. and therefore your skills in that area might be mm. it might be too competitive to continue being a unique kind yes. of person in that yeah um and the second one is is the, the kind of ha being savvy enough to use one thing to leapfrog well savvy is a very kind description of what, <laughs> what i was doing what i was actually doing when I think about it, was trying to just save myself from being obsolete. Right. Because I, I could see that the thing that I was doing was not being helpful to me or my mental health and uh, moving on before it got too bad. Um, certainly leaving teaching, I would describe as an act of self-preservation right. rather than Is a career move. Yes, it was. It was as, as much as I enjoyed being with the kids, and I still see some of them around from time to time and have fond memories and they, they all say, oh, Mr. Thompson, as much as I enjoyed that and loved the school productions, absolutely loved doing all that sort of stuff, that is, you know, a small part of the job. And yeah. a lot of the job is admin and being marked yourself by Ofsted, which I went through two Ofsted inspections during my six years as a teacher and found it extremely harrowing. That's in the news as well at the moment. Yeah. Um, but back in those days... A team of 10 inspectors descended on your school and stayed with you for five days. That happened twice during my very early teaching career and was very traumatic. Yeah. Very right. traumatic. Um, and, and by the time I left teaching in 95, I remember thinking one day I would rather be unemployed or, you know, doing the bins or, you know, anything. I'd rather do anything than this right. because I... I I got to the point where it was really affecting my mental health. I was stressed. I was depressed, probably, right. and uh, needed to get out. 
So it was an escape rather than a savvy career move. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds savvy. It does sound talking? savvy, doesn't Sounds it? savvy. No, it was pure self-preservation. Um, w- let's move forward about 15 years. I did, I did the web development as it, as it became. Yeah. That was the start of my website development career. And I, I became a, a website designer uh, in the mid-90s, was one of the first two or three people in Northumberland who was doing that. Got in with Business Link as a one of their preferred suppliers. Was doing websites for lots and lots of businesses. Over the fifteen years, I I kind of did website as my main uh, thing. I I worked on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of website projects. So many, countless website projects. And I obviously got to the point where I didn't really want to see another website because I'd done it all before, and. I'm not saying I was the best website designer or developer in the world because I certainly wasn't, but I'd certainly done a lot of it. Um, and, but I again recognised that things were changing and it was the early days. This is, well, let me think when this was. This is around about 2008, 9, 10, those sorts of years. Um, this is kind of the early days of people being able to do their own websites. So things that are like Squarespace now or Wix or Weebly. Early WordPress. Um, WordPress, those sorts of things. So the, the writing was starting to be on the wall that if you wanted a website, you no longer had to pay hundreds or thousands of pounds even for somebody special to do it for you. Yeah. You could do this yourself. And uh, you know, at that point, the combination of me thinking, I never want to see another website as long as I live, and people are going to be doing this for themselves anyway, thank goodness, made me think about what do I do next? And the answer to that question was it needs to be something that people can't do easily for themselves but is interesting to me and creative and that I already have some skill in. And I'd always taken photographs. I'd always had an interest in video. Uh, You know, as a teenager with my my friends when we were doing the kind of the Crunchy Maggots album stuff we were also making silly little videos of, of ourselves doing daft things and so um, I thought well the video side of things is something that people don't readily do themselves and this was back you know 15 yeah. years ago so let's do that let's see if I can but I thought um, there's no way I can make a living doing that in you know Newbegin by the Sea or even Northumberland who's going to pay for somebody to make films for them um, so it was it was a really difficult decision, but again at the time my back was against the wall because apart from anything else, if you remember two thousand and nine, there was another global event which meant that the bottom fell out of a lot of the kind of economic market, and suddenly companies were not willing to take risks on their spending, yeah. and it, you know it was it was a difficult time because I was I was in a position where I had to do something new that I hadn't really done a huge amount before at a time when businesses were not really hugely, you know, you know, they didn't have a huge amount of money to, to spare. Um, I was also going through some personal stuff at the time and breakup, divorce. And my dad died at the same time as well. So that, that you know, 2010 was an extremely traumatic period yeah. where lots of things were changing. Um, and I, I, I got a bit depressed at that time and burnt out. And so it was not the best time to start a new a new venture. But started I did and slowly managed to get bits of work and grow the business. And what was on my side was that the internet side of things was getting better and faster. 
and websites were suddenly places where you could host video yeah. and it was no longer people waiting minutes and minutes and minutes to see a video. I remember when my kids were very young, in the mid-90s, uh, we had a computer, it had the internet, it was dial-up, and I, I wanted them to see this little video animation called The Cat Came Back from the Canadian um, Animation Board, I think, had made that. And it's a little five-minute video, great little song, very funny video, and I, I saw that you could download it took three days to download this five minute <laughs> video and we'd come back to it and there'd be an, you know, that were, one kilobyte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and eventually the kids got to see this, this video. So that's what the internet was like in the early days. By 2010, you could kind of see that streaming media was a thing yeah. and that uh, it, was, it was realistic to expect that somebody would want video on their website and also social media um, was was by then a thing that people were interested in. So I could see lots of potential outlets for short films yeah. and I just needed to find the people who were willing to pay me to do it. And is that the role then that continues through until you join the bigger picture? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Yeah, back in yeah, back then I wanted to minimize the website side of things and you know expand the photography and video side of things so that's what I actively tried to do and again there were there were some lucky breaks in that in that I got some clients who gave me you know gave me the chance to to work on some video projects for them and to to do some bits as I was learning and um, you know that's exactly what I needed Uh, so lucky really in some ways that I, that I knew some people and organizations that uh, were happy to take a chance on me probably because I'd already had a relationship with some of them on the website side yeah. of things they knew that I was you know for want of a better phrase a safe pair of hands and wasn't going to kind of just muck something up completely even though I was in those days learning it a little bit yeah. um, but it was also new to me and therefore I was happy to put the hours in and enjoy it and it was fun so I didn't mind and throughout all of this stuff that you're doing there, how have you been fulfilling that creative urge that you've had? You talked about kind of producing an album in your 20s. Is there other stuff that you've done outside of your immediate professional work? That's... There has been the occasional thing, less so recently, um, I've, you know, but, but all, all the way through I've done little, you know, little personal video projects for friends or you know, maybe a little music video or whatever it might be. I've done, I've tried to do little little things on the side that I enjoy that aren't yeah. necessarily what a client wants. In the last two or three years, there's been very little of that um, because there's been quite a bit of work from the clients and I don't have the energy to do that in my spare time. I'm doing that all day, every day. So when I come home, I don't want to pick up a video camera or sit at an edit suite and continue my day job I want to do something (laughs) different to my day job which in some ways is a little bit sad because I'd love to I'd love to have the space and time to do that Um, I still think that if I could do anything part of what I would do would be a documentary of some kind about something that interests me and partly because I love watching documentaries you know I, I enjoy films I enjoy you know all sorts of things but to me there's something extra special about a documentary and there are there are a handful of documentaries that are 
just magical in that they take you somewhere slightly unexpected and it's not something that's been scripted and these are real people in real situations and there's something that I absolutely love about that. Um, for instance, there's a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man. Uh, incredible. Uh, if you haven't seen it, please see it. Uh, or won't say anything other than it's worth watching. So there, there's one. Um, there, there are many others. I love the documentaries of Werner Herzog and Errol Morris and and others. Um, and I don't know, there's something about the reality of it, but it's also creative in that you as a documentary maker are choosing the story and how to tell the story and what to show and what not to show. So it's not just a, you know, it's not just a bland mirror. It's it's something that does have its own uh, voice and uh, focus and flavour. And I think there's something interesting that you can do with that. And also I've always loved showcasing someone else's creativity. So, so some of the jobs that I've done over the years, which I've enjoyed most, have been working with artists and creatives, showing how they work and what they've done and their process and... You know, I love that. So I've done some work for uh, museums and, and local arts projects. So there's Woodhorn Museum and there's Bait, who was, all, was until recently based at Woodhorn Museum. And over the 10 years that that project was running, I worked on many short films which told the story of a little community arts project or an artist or a creative of some kind or an exhibition. And I've, I've really enjoyed those jobs because... To me, as well as being interesting in their own right, they're also introducing somebody to somebody else's creativity. And there's a, a potential for a future experience in that, which there isn't at the end of a film. A film ends and it's kind of, well, those characters are unavailable to me now. Whereas if you make a documentary, those characters are still available to you somewhere in the world, often. And you can continue to research their story and see where they've gone and interact with them and... You know, I quite like that about documentary. So what does the future look like? What projects have you got coming up? And is there a, is there a documentary in you that's dying to get out? So the future at the moment, we're, we're doing a lot of projects with a lot of clients and that will continue. So we'll be doing those projects which range from construction through to education, through to entertainment, through to whatever it is. So we're, do, we're doing those all the time. Um, in terms of the documentary, part of what we do sometimes involves a documentary aspect. So, for instance, there was a festival last year called the Hadrian's Wall 1900 Festival, and we did a slightly longer film documenting that festival. So I went along to a lot of, a lot of the events, spoke to a lot of the people that were involved in that, and made for us a slightly longer film about that, which will be the legacy of that festival. So I loved doing that. We're also in the early stages at the moment of, of doing a documentary for the, the Northeast Local Enterprise Partnership, which uh, is around special educational needs um, and specifically about students who have special educational needs in their year where they are starting to think about careers and they're talking to careers advisors, they're going out on work experience, they're starting to think about where they want to go with their lives and so we're in the early stages of that and we're going to we're going to follow a group of students for about 18 months which is probably the longest i've stayed with a project um, and find out what they think they're going to be doing 
in a, in a couple of years' time, and then in a couple of years' time we'll find out what they actually are doing and follow that story through. Uh, so at the moment we're kind of saying, you know, if you could do any job, what would you want to do? What sorts of things interest you? What hobbies have you got? What sorts of things are you good at at school? What interest? You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, asking what their dream job would be. And then a, a different question, what job do you think you'll end up doing? Because often they're quite different yeah, things. Yeah, the tension's quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. That sounds it, great. It is, yeah. So, as I say, we're very early stages on that. I'm doing a couple of sessions next week in schools in the area, starting to interview some of the pupils, and we're going to follow that through. So that's that's a documentary, um, and we'll probably end up being 30 minutes, I guess, following maybe six pupils through through that 18 month yeah. period as far as as other things go you know living in a world where you need to pay bills I, I don't at the moment have the time or you know kind of budget personal budget to take any significant time away from my career to do something else I can't do that at the moment, and yeah. it, it's, that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not hung up about it. Um, maybe at some point I will get to do that. Um, that would be nice. Uh, not there yet. Um, oh, the other thing, the other possibility is that a client might come in with a documentary idea, yeah. or we may search, we may seek funding yeah. for a documentary. That was that's another possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm I'm attending an event on Tuesday for North East Screen in Newcastle, which is about, I don't quite know what, but this, we're starting to try and research ways of of deciding what we do next rather than the client coming to us and saying, we want you to do this. I think the next step for us is to think, okay, we want to do something. Yeah, yeah. Let's find out how to get the funding to do that. Who's going to be able to, to give us a budget? Yeah. Um, and who can we work with to make what we think is a really great idea come come about so i think that's the next the next phase for us and it's a little bit new to us because uh, we've not done that before but sounds exciting though it is exciting yeah i think another important aspect when i'm thinking about the future has to do with mental health because for a myriad of reasons um for the first few months of the year i was not at my best um, i was trying to get uh, some treatment for anxiety which had been, you know, a problem towards the end of last year. And short story is that I got some medication, which is was antidepressants. And the ironic thing was that it made me depressed. Uh, I, I didn't have the anxiety, but I didn't have any get up and go or energy or any kind of desire to see people or engage in the creative process at all. So I, I, you know, I consider the first three months of this year to almost be wasted time. Yes, I still produced work. I still kind of hit the deadlines and I did what I needed to be done. But I found over the last few weeks since I've come off my medication that my brain has got um, adrenaline running through it again. And I find that I'm thinking in a creative way. I'm thinking in a positive way. And it's made me realise that you know, one of the most important things as a creative person is your mental health because without good mental health, I'm not saying I've got great mental health now, but it's certainly better than it was over the last few months. Without, you know, positive mental health, your creativity is impossible to engage with. And, you know, I, I find that 
success leads to success and failure leads to failure. So if you if you notice that you're anxi- you know, anxious or self-critical, then you become more so. Um, and for me, over the last few weeks, it's it's fortunately it's been the opposite of that in that I've noticed myself coming back into a positive place yeah. and a positive frame of mind and the realisation that, yeah, I can do things and I am a creative person and I can enjoy the things that I do and I can be pleased with the, the things that I produce. And it's a lovely place to be and there's obviously a lot more work to be done in that, but it's made me realise how absolutely fundamental to the creative process your, your mental health is, more than your physical health. Uh, thank you very much for your time tonight, Jason. It's really kind of you to give your Friday evening up. It's all <laughs> pleasure. It's been lovely to chat to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 